This is TechSnap, episode 366. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We recorded this episode on May 1st, 2018. It's brought to you by our three great sponsors, Ting, IX Systems, and DigitalOcean. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is my co-host, the admin, the engineer, and the presenter. It's Mr. Payne. Mr. Wes Payne. Hello, Wes. Hello, Chris. We have a really fun show this week. We have a great warm-up story that if you're in your car right now, might freak you out a little bit. It's confirming all of your worst suspicions. But then later on in the episode, we'll play some clips from Linux Fest Northwest where one Mr. Alan Jude joins Wes and I for some great conversations. It's going to be a good show. But let's jump into that warm-up story. Volkswagen and Audi cars are vulnerable to remote hacking And it might be even worse than you're thinking. Yeah, it's not great. A Dutch cybersecurity firm has discovered that some in-vehicle entertainment systems deployed by the Volkswagen Group are vulnerable to remote hacking. Yeah, that's right. Remote hacking of your car. Security researchers with CompuTest said they successfully tested their findings and exploit chains on Volkswagen's Golf GTE and an Audi A3. Here's where it gets really upsetting. The two researchers were able to use a car's Wi-Fi connection to exploit an exposed port and gain access to the car's entertainment system. They were also able to gain access to the entertainment system's root account. I'm sorry, root account? Root account. Yeah, that's right. They've got this great screenshot in the article here showing them just telnetting in. And then, boom, there you go. Full root access to a QNX neutrino system. Yeah, they telnet to 10.0.0.16. Right there, QNX comes up. They've got a little Audi branding in the message of the day file. Yeah, with root permissions comes a lot of access. Under certain conditions, attackers could listen into conversations the driver was having. They could turn the microphone on and off, even gain access to the complete address book and conversation history. That is a lot of metadata and data. There's also the possibility of discovering through the navigation system basically everywhere that you've been driving. So say goodbye to your in-car privacy. Now, bearing in mind that they're using the Wi-Fi that's built into the car, it would simply just take the car driving somewhere that goes on a public access point, and then you have potentially the ability to connect to it. And what seems striking to me is that all of these things are on the same network. The Wi-Fi, the QNX host, the microphone, all of it's on the same system. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't seem like that makes any sense. And why in in 2018 would you design a system that should be secure, that should take privacy seriously, why would you design it that way? Yeah, it's funny where they decide to focus. Um, So recently I had an experience where somebody needed to get a switch replaced for their automatic power window. And the switch for the power window has a MAC address that, when installed, has to be authorized to the computer in the car system by the manufacturer, just for the control. Of course. And so they're willing to, to control that and lock that down. But then on the other end, behind the system, you can get in as root over Telnet. Yeah, it gets even worse. The researchers were able to indirectly connect to the car's acceleration and braking systems. Now, they didn't go any farther. I guess they had some confusions about breaching Volkswagen's intellectual property, so they, they didn't probe yeah. any further there, but that is disturbing. That is, and it's a barrier that somebody who was really trying to attack somebody would not respect. Intellectual property might stop proper researchers, but somebody could definitely build on top of this, and they're not going to stop because of copyright law. Yeah. 
Turns out there's also some uh, USB debugging ports that are left that you're able to access underneath the car's dashboard if you know where to look for them. So there are tons of ways to get this access. Well, maybe they can use all of this different access to update these systems, Wes. I mean, what is what is Volkswagen doing about this? Because the researchers have been working with Volkswagen, uh, and I think they were uh, even attending meetings at Volkswagen about these issues. So has there been any movement, any progress? Yeah, it looks like they started working with Volkswagen back in 2017. Volkswagen reports that as of about May, late May, June 2016, on the Golf GTE and the Audi A3, they had closed those ports, so they were no longer available. They had, they had updated that, the actual infotainment system itself, you know, from their vendors, upgraded that. There's a couple issues, though. So that, that sounds good. Yeah, they've, they've got the patch. They've worked with researchers to understand it. Yeah, what the issue is, though, that... They're not updating these, are they? No. You know why? Uh, These systems do not come with any over-the-air update facility. So unless you were a very, you know, ambitious user who knows about this flaw, is able to use those USB debugging ports to upload new firmware, it's not going to happen. Yeah, or maybe this Wi-Fi exploit. I mean, I was joking earlier, but that's really what customers are reduced to. And what do you want to bet that you go into a dealership and you say, I need to get my computer reflashed because of a remote hacking vulnerability via the Wi-Fi where they can get root access to the Q&X system and the entertainment system. They're going to look at you like you're a maniac. They might even report you. Uh, I went in for a simple computer update to control the lighting system that I had read off of the internet that would fix my headlight in my truck. They have no idea what I'm talking about, and they have no idea how to look it up. They don't have like a bulletin that comes down from corporate from corporate HQ. They are just not properly trained in this aspect of vehicle maintenance, in my personal opinion. Sounds like they've patched basically every car that they could that was still in production. They did not reveal any plan to the researchers about how they might try to deal with cars already sold to customers. Now, if you have one of these cars, you want to try this yourself, uh, you're not quite in luck. The researchers made it very clear uh, they don't plan to reveal the exact services and ports behind their exploit. They've documented a lot of what they did, what they found, uh, but they were concerned, especially with you know, the, the inability to patch these systems, that revealing too many details could leave people vulnerable. I think these stories still get me personally upset because I feel like these manufacturers, like the car manufacturers, like Volkswagen, shouldn't be going into this business unless they're going to do a complete job. Uh, You and I have off-air remarked that Hughes, Phillips Hughes, right? uh, they have a massive data center infrastructure now, so that way people can turn their lights on and off. And if you're going to get into the IoT game or you're going to start embedding QNX systems in cars with Wi-Fi access points, you really have to go all the way in. You can't just dabble in it. Otherwise, you have to outsource it. You have to outsource it to somebody who's an expert. And I'm not advocating for Google or Apple to take over all entertainment systems in cars, but I have a stronger belief that they would do better at patching these systems, designing them to be more secure. They're not going to be perfect, but they wouldn't be just hanging open like this. I don't think the car companies have the right, I don't know, maybe mentality. What do you think? Oh yeah, definitely. I, you know, that's that's the thing is there's there's mentality, there's philosophy. You really have to understand the the principles of security and why you're doing these tasks. It's not just a simple checklist of technical to-dos, and unless you get that, you're you're never going to be on the ball. Right, because the thing is, it's not a static issue you're trying to solve. Security evolves, new capabilities come out, and you have to be constantly 
addressing them. You have to be constantly monitoring them. It is 100% as much of a mindset as it is an implementation. Right, and it should be, you know, everywhere. How did this How did this get out without Q&A finding it, right? They test all kinds of other aspects of the yeah. cars. They're clearly not doing the kind of security audits yeah. that they should be. In the article, which we have linked in the show notes, techsnap.systems slash 366, the researchers speculate that they never did a security audit because they said they found basic stuff that the most obvious audits would have found. TechSnap.ting.com. Ting is smarter than unlimited mobile. If you use less, you pay less. And when you go to TechSnap.ting.com, you'll get a $25 credit off a device. Or if you bring a device, you'll get $25 in service credit. Now they have CDMA and GSM to choose from. So check their BYOD page. You might be able to bring something and then get a great deal. Average Ting bill a month, 23 bucks. Yeah, I know. It's because they use a really simple system that's easy to wrap your head around. It's $6 a month for the line, and then you just pay for your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. Whatever you use, that's what you pay. It's nationwide coverage, no contracts, no early termination fees, a great control panel to manage every aspect of your account, including even control down to individual services like if you never use SMS, turn that crap off. If you never use whatever, turn it off. If you want to disable a device, go, go, go you're done. No contract, no big deal. It's easy peasy. And they have great customer service if you ever get stuck. A ton of really nice devices, including ones that are just great little feature phones. If you just need to make some freaking calls or you want a backup line, all the way up to the Cadillacs, all the way up. And people love Ting because of their customer service. And they always have great tips and tricks. You can check out their blog for all that kind of stuff, including some thought-provoking blogs on net neutrality. They post that stuff there too. Get started by going to techsnap.ting.com. You'll get a $25 service credit. It's smarter than unlimited. If you use less, you pay less. Techsnap.ting.com. Another security researcher this week is sharing the story of his Honeypot laptop. Have you ever thought about having a machine you wanted to have intentionally hacked? Well, he did. And he brought it with him as he traveled the world. We often talk about the difficulty of keeping operational security while you're traveling, right? Your people go to great lengths, they buy new laptops, they wipe hard drives just to go cross borders. The, this researcher took it really to the next level. For the past two years, he's carried a honeypot laptop specifically designed to attract and then ideally detect tampering. So if any hacker, state-sponsored or otherwise, wanted to hack him by physically messing with this laptop, he wanted to catch them in the act, but also try to gather as much technical evidence as he could and be able to, you know, figure out what exactly they're doing. He writes that, while traveling by air, I checked this laptop in my luggage to make it easily accessible to border agents, both domestic and foreign, to tamper with if they chose. When staying in hotels, I left the laptop sitting on the desk in my room while I was away during the day to make sure that any malicious housekeepers with permission to enter my room or anyone else was free to tamper with it if they wanted. I also put a bunch of hacker stickers all over it, hoping that this would make it a more enticing target. I like that part. <laughs> really going the extra mile. Yeah. Over the duration of this experiment, I traveled to Europe three times, domestically to the United States five times. I found eight different notices from the TSA informing me that my baggage had been searched. I have no way of knowing how many times it had been searched by other authorities who weren't kind enough to leave a note. Now, I never caught anyone tampering with this laptop, but the absence of any evidence of tampering and my obsessive thoughts about the various ways an attacker could have evaded my detection served to underline how fraught the process of computer forensics can be. 
If someone who makes their living securing computers thinks they could have missed a computer infection, what hope is there for the average computer user? Oh, man, what's fascinating about this piece is the lengths he went to to verify if his machine had ever been compromised or touched. Uh, And, you know, he covers standard things, of course, like disk encryption. But he goes so much further than that, including he sort of tries to visualize all the various different attack vectors that he may be subject to while traveling. And the one that he spends a little time in the article talking about, which is a which is an actual type of attack, the evil made attack. Hilarious name. uh, But I think it's I think it's actually a legitimate type of attack. The idea being that somebody could get physical access to your machine while you're away. Exactly how the evil made attack works sort of depends on a lot of different factors, the type of computer you use, what operating systems you use, and if you have disk encryption software and the configuration of your firmware. Maybe it's a BIOS or EFI. There's all different dynamics that come into it. And some computers have considerably better technology to prevent the sort of evil made attack than others. Like, for example, uh, laptops that have BitLocker, they might stand up better than, say, a Mac laptop with FileVault. Who knows? But maybe a Linux laptop with Lux probably stands up a lot better than a Linux laptop with a clear, plain disk. And one of the evil made attacks would be somebody comes in, swaps out the hard drive, and just walks away with it. Encryption prevents that. But how do you know if somebody just got on your system, left a keylogger, added something to the USB bus, maybe hooked up a Thunderbolt device, depending on the type of machine you have, How do you know if it's been touched when you get back? And that's the part he zeroes in on, which was fascinating. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, what can happen is they can replace your bootloader or or portions of your firmware, and then the screen you think where you're typing in your encryption password, yeah, it turns out that's logging it or transmitting it or capturing it for later reconnaissance. There are, as you mentioned, there are some, some things that can make it better, in particular like hardware roots of trust, TPM modules, attestation of your boot chain, things like that can help at least maybe let you know that you've been compromised, but there's there's really no sure thing. Yeah, he found a whole chain of open source tools to test the validity of his system. And he really got started back in February of 2016, right before he was planning to fly to Spain for the Internet Freedom Festival. He bought himself a Lenovo IdeaPad S210 for around $700, and he made himself a plan. Yeah, he writes, Before each trip, I would update all the software on the Honeypot laptop. I wanted potential attackers to see that I'm using up-to-date bootloader software stored on the small, unencrypted part of my disk to believe that I was actually using this computer. Then, I'll power off the laptop and don't power on again until the trip was over. Here, he was concerned that just by powering on the computer, he could disturb some, you know, some marks, leave some, some impact that might otherwise reveal an attacker. Then, I'll remove the hard disk from the laptop, attach it to an external USB enclosure, and plug it into another computer, taking care not to modify any data on it. There, I'll make a record of the state of the disk. Take a disk image, that sort of thing. Then, I'll attach a BeagleBone Black, a tiny $50 computer that's great for hardware hacking. Attach it by the SPI flash chip on the motherboard and use that to dump the BIOS firmware, save an exact copy of the data stored on that chip. Finally, reassemble the computer. As a reminder, during the trip, he's leaving the Honeypot laptop in his checked luggage and leaving it out in his hotel room unattended, really trying to get it near the hands of any evildoers that may come by. I like, too, that he's not out going out of his way, though. Right, you're he's, not leaving it at a coffee shop right. or something like that. He's trying to. He's really trying to see how much is just ambient spying happening on me without me, like, being dumb. Like, if I just follow the rules, I check my luggage, I keep my laptop in my hotel room, I'm safe otherwise, how much exposure of risk do I actually have? Yeah, exactly. You know, something like a normal, somewhat security-conscious traveler might do. 
All right, so once he gets back from the trip, he's going to remove the hard disk from the laptop, plug it into another computer, and then take a disk image again. If even a single bit of data has changed on the disk, a diff should be able to tell. Then, again, attach the BeagleBone Black, take a dump of the BIOS firmware, and do the same comparison. Along the way, he's planning to document really everything. You know, take photos of the laptop and the luggage at hotels, the cards that the TSA leaves, keep a log of the state of the hard disk and bias before and after each trip, really kind of build up an intense journal of this process. So when he's back, he has the journaling to do, and then he has also the reconnaissance. And when he started the project, he was dual-booting Windows 10 and Debian, kind of make it look more legitimate. Uh, uh, But then as time went on, that became a lot to manage and also to do validation checking against. So he ended up just consolidating down to Debian. Yeah, that makes sense. It's probably, you know... Linux systems are often easier to get exact control over than something like Windows. And you're trying to just get an idea if the disk has been tampered with. And so if you're just focusing on one operating system, it's a much simpler task, he writes. Now, of course, there were some technical difficulties you had to work through going through all these procedures. Uh, So before each trip, he was removing, removing the disk, plugging it into another computer to take the disk image. First snag he really ran into was that every time he plugged that in, the computer would just try to automatically mount the partitions, which, of course, obviously updates timestamps, risks modifying data, makes it a lot more impossible to do the diff that he's trying to do. Thankfully, he is, uh, again, running Linux, so he's easily able to just disable automatic mounting and then take an image right from the raw disk. Here he's using some tools that I'm sure are familiar to the TechSnap audience. In particular, he's using DD just to, to copy over, over the data. And then he's taking SHA-256 sums of the data, you know, just to have nice hashes that he can use to easily see if things have changed, if data's different. So all in all, taking the disk image turns out relatively simple, got that worked out pretty well. Where it got a lot more difficult was getting that firmware image. You know, he started off with his plan. He was, he was going to use an SPI chip. He's going to read off the SPI bus from, from the BeagleBone Black. Turns yeah, the out, BeagleBone Black was capable of even providing enough power to flash the BIOS chip without powering up the rest of the laptop, which is a feature that some Lenovo systems have. However, this one didn't. No. So his plan did not really go according to plan. Had to change. Turns out there's some neat open source software called ChipSec, which is a platform security assessment framework. He was able to use an Ubuntu Live CD, boot up the laptop, use ChipSec to dump the firmware onto an SD card, and then go inspect that on another machine. So, okay, that seems like that's a pretty reasonable workaround. It's not as simple as one might hope, though. Turns out every time he booted the Honeypot laptop with the Live CD, did the dump, looked at another computer, every time he did that, the checksum was different. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, what's going on? He used another neat tool called UEFI Tool, It's a graphical program that lets you load BIOS images, view, and edit what data is stored inside. You can also just extract a whole bunch of data. really just mines the BIOS for information. This allowed him to extract out the individual components of the BIOS and check some of those individually and then see which component underneath. Could have have been many. Turns out it was just one that was changing every time. And it's that fancy feature on UEFI. You know, you have that boot order, that save state saved in that image. So every time you would change your boot order, that would get changed. The next boot changes. So Uh, it's just this tiny little piece of it. And it's writing that back to the firmware, which is changing the checksum. Yeah, exactly. But it's not, you know, he was able to then to see that it wasn't any of the programs. It wasn't most of the rest of the firmware. It's just that tiny little mutant section, he was able to, you know, go ahead according to plan. And find the other bits to check some that weren't getting affected. Now, that's interesting because he had to dig into the image and find the subcomponents that he actually wanted to check some. Fascinating. Yeah, that's a tool I'm going to have to play with. I'll toss a link in the show notes. Now, of course, if you've been following along 
this is a fair bit of work, right? It, spent, it required him spending a few hours before and after each trip just to try to catch anyone. So after two years without catching anyone, he's decided to retire the project. Now, a tool exists today that didn't when he started. That's Haven. Haven is an Android app designed to run on a spare phone that you leave in your hotel room while you're away. Perhaps sitting on top of your laptop, it uses all of its sensors, microphone, motion detector, and light detector cameras to monitor the room for changes. It logs everything it notices and can send signal notifications to the phone you carry with you if it detects a change. Now, of course, Haven isn't perfect. There are plenty of false positives, but it gets better all the time, and it's likely to catch anyone attempting to temper with the laptop that's sitting under the phone Haven is running on, right? If you're going to if you get access to the room, you're probably going to have to open the laptop, do something with it that would require movement. So that's interesting. Something that stood out to me and he notes explicitly is he was able to do this whole project with 100% free and open source software. So it really says a lot, I think, that, you know, the open source community takes security seriously, and there's a wide set of tooling that if you're interested in this sort of stuff, there's a lot of resources to work with. I don't know about you, Chris, but I sure had a fantastic time at this year's Linux Fest Northwest. And one of my favorite moments was getting to sit down with Alan Jude and longtime TechSnap fan Jed Reynolds. We had some great conversations, including some classic conversations about Alan's firewall memories and hunting down network bottlenecks. Have you guys ever bonded 10 gig ports? Ever uh, played around with that? I don't think I have. No. Uh, when I needed to do the testing, I was doing some performance testing on SSH. We're doing ZFS replication over SSH okay. and seeing what I could do to get the best speed. I, I cheated and used uh, the machine at the FreeBSD network test cluster that had a dual port 40 gigabit card Ooh, uh, instead of nice. trying to bond two of my 10 gigabit NICs together. To, yeah. Huh. Yeah, uh, I think the best I got was, I think, 18 gigabits a second. Uh, of ZFS replication before SSH topped out at the most it could do. Yeah. Hey, that's pretty good, though. Yeah. Yeah, and that's great. I think Netcat got up to 31 gigabits. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Well, at about that speed, you're you're challenging your your PCIe backplane. You know, you're you're getting up to some. Yeah, you're pushing a lot of. That's a lot there. of data to go. Yeah. Yeah, and again, even at 40 gigabits, we're talking about you know you don't have very many nanoseconds to process each of those packets. No. Yeah. Uh, and so, especially when we're uh, looking at uh, performance improvements on FreeBSD as a router, where you oh, have to yeah. take that packet uh, at 10 gigabit, you have to take that packet in, do some work, and put it back out of the other NIC. Uh, and you have, I think it's 14 nanoseconds yeah. to do it. Make your routing decision real quick now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's why, you know, being able to do 10 gigabits out of the card is not hard if you're doing the full, like, 1,500-byte uh, packets or if you're doing jumbo frames and doing 9,000-byte packets. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. But uh, we test worst-case scenario of the 64-byte packet. The minute huh. it's, like, all header and, like, one Just byte one of data. Deal. Yes, right. Totally. Um, and... <laughs> You know, that uh, means to get to get to ten gigabits, you have to be able to do fourteen point something or fourteen point eight million packets per second. Ooh. You have to receive that, decide how to route it, and send it, it, it out. Uh, and you know, for a while there, the best we could do is about ten. Mm -hmm. uh, but it really depended on the NIC and stuff. And and now we're we're solidly doing all uh, uh, fourteen million packets a second. It's like, okay, now it's time to switch to 40 gigabit NICs and see what, where the bottlenecks are. Yeah, yeah. so is that mostly just a process then of, of finding each bottleneck, knocking yep. it down, and continuing through the yeah. stack? And then being like, oh, well, we knocked that bottleneck down, but it turns out there was a second one that's like the same size and we got no improvement. Ugh. Or you finally knock one down and you get a big improvement. It's like, oh, nice. Uh, and then, you know, 
it's on to the next thing. Yeah, next right, thing yeah. next okay, thing. well, now what's slowing us down? Uh, and then, you know, as he's doing that, he's also testing the firewalls. So how sure. much slower does a firewall get? Mm-hmm. It's like, why does this one firewall seem a lot faster than the other one when um, yeah, I was say, you scale better? Both. Um, depending on the type of firewall, the more rules you have might actually make it slower. Right. Um, and it looked really weird because at, at first it looked like, all right, as we add more rules, this firewall is getting slower and slower, and this one's staying the same speed. How's it doing that? Mm-hmm. And you're looking at it as, oh, actually, when you give it this list of rules, it recompiles that into a table yes. where it can just so do it can a just lookup. Do lookup so it doesn't have to check the packet against every rule. It just checks one rule that has this table of, of matches. Um, and it's like, oh, cheaters. <laughs> so they rewrote the, uh, the test rule set to use a table and, and trying the size of the table. And like, oh, now that both firewalls can yeah, they the same. perform the same. And, you know, you really get into... It turns out benchmarking is really difficult. It's its whole uh, own process, right? With its own because yeah. it's like you know the biggest mistake Foronix always makes is like when you get a result, the first thing you have to do is ask why, and then uh, basically why five more times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and eventually then you it's like okay, so this test wasn't actually testing what I thought it was testing. Yes. I was testing uh, number of rules versus size of table, which isn't the same thing. And once I made it, you know, apples to apples. Uh, I got turns out I got results the same like no no difference or the opposite of what I expected. Yeah, it really seems like you really need to have understanding, right? You can't Mm -hmm. a large part like just black box tests. They don't really mean much, right? Maybe you know your vendor has this, but it's like how does that actually fit into the whole stack? Where are my real limitations? Yeah, and it's saying that when you get the vendor benchmarks, you know, it's just like, oh, this drive can do this many IOPS. It's like, yeah, if you do all linear and you do it exactly <laughs> yeah. this way, turns out none of my things are like that. Samsung is apparently notorious for writing their their drive benchmarks that way. You know, you have to you have to get like the full sixty four you know Q depths on their drives yeah. to get that that amount of throughput. Uh, or you know, back in the day, uh, ATI and NVIDIA both got taught cheating on like uh, standard graphics benchmarks, like uh, 3D yes. Mark and so on. Right. They like optimize for that specific test to get a slightly higher score than the competitor. It's like, sure, it gives you a better score, but when you play the game, yeah. you it get completely different yeah. results. Oh, oh, so they're lies, damn lies, and benchmarks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It really is a statistics game. Yeah, uh, that's one of the other nice things is uh, on FreeBSD. There's actually a statistics tool built in that one of uh, the FreeBSD developers wrote called MiniStat. Is that And you right? give it um, like you know you run each benchmark uh, before and after or whatever uh, five or more times, and you feed it the numbers from both, and it does the stats and figures out all right with 95% confidence there's a two percent difference in these numbers. Beautiful. Uh, or you've actually or you know. While the numbers, the average and the median are pretty much are different, it turns out that there's actually not much difference here mm-hmm. when you look at it statistically. Yeah, you actually look at the spread of the distribution and... Yeah, and then it tries to draw a little ASCII art diagram and it's like, okay, that, that <laughs> part maybe is not so useful. A little over But it can, it can help you understand um, also, like, so I, I ran the benchmark 10 times and I got this average, but what I actually got is half the results were at this time and half the results were at this yeah. time. The the average in the middle, I never actually got a result anywhere near there. Yep. And then the median, it's like, well, if I got five and five, the median's going to be like one or the other kind yeah. of thing. It's not going to necessarily be the right answer either. And actually, from the graph, you can tell, all right, what I actually have here is bimodal. Totally. It's, so why is half the time it doing faster than this half? Is, is it a cache effect? Uh, is it um, NUMA? It turns out if you have a dual socket system, uh, if you're benchmarking certain things, if you're trying to talk to the PCIe card, 
that's connected to CPU one, but right. you're running on CPU zero, you go across the cost connect and it takes a little longer and your performance will be worse. So then you're using like the CPU set commander and trying to pin the CPU affinity of benchmark to be close to close to uh, what you're accessing. To the, the memory or the, the NIC that you're accessing or whatever. And then suddenly that makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Or even just uh, when I was doing the SSH testing over a pipe, making sure that both sides were on the same CPU yes. and I wasn't copying memory back and back forth and back and forth. That, yeah, yeah, that's huge. That's, that's difficult to track down. You, you, yeah. have, to, you have to learn how, how, what PCI lanes are associated with what socket, what core. Yep. And yeah, the abstraction not, really starts breaking down, right? You really have to understand the, the actual implementation of whatever machine you're using. Then. Yeah, and, and not... Sometimes you can pick the wrong cores, and so, and sometimes like not pinning is more efficient. Yep, mm. and sometimes it's also like tweaking the scheduler. Like, right? Uh, do I want to steal more often? Uh, you know, the work's been on this core, uh, but that core's got a bit of other work going on. Do I steal it and bring it over here? But in doing so, I don't get to bring the cache with me. Uh, and it, you know, that cache was hot, and maybe it, was, it yep. would do better staying over there. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if it's contending with some other process, maybe that process is going to keep blowing out its cache and giving me worse results than if I brought it over here. That's a lot of things to keep it, to consider, right? And try well, to get and right. Your results on a server might be different than what you want on a desktop, absolutely, like, uh, or a laptop. On a laptop, it's like if the core is not all the way busy, keep all the tasks on one core, so the other yeah, one is just stay in a low power state. Turn it off. Uh, and, and it get more battery life. Uh, yeah. And then, it, you know, the same thing with, like, Turbo Boost. It's, sometimes it's faster to crank the clock up and get all this work done in half a second rather than to spend three seconds doing yeah. it at a lower clock rate. Because uh, while that used more battery, it only did it for a short amount of time, and then I got back to a low power state instead of being in a medium state for Wasting three seconds. Time, yeah. uh, so power management and scheduling and having a scheduler that understands power management <laughs> yes. is really complicated, and you end up with this thing of, you know... You have your laptop and your desktop and then a server and then a busy server, and they all actually need slightly different tuning. It wouldn't be a proper catch-up with Alan Jude on the TechSnap program without a classic Alan ZFS update. I, I just have gigabit at home. Yes. Uh, <laughs> That's reasonable. <laughs> but even better, now that uh, ZFS on uh, FreeBSD and Linux has the compressed send, so yeah. you're not decompressing yeah. the data, sending it over the network, yeah. and then recompressing it. What version did that show up in? Was that a 7.6 In, in FreeBSD, we don't have the same uh, version. Right. So, oh, uh, it just showed up as a feature one day. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's been around long enough, I I don't think it's in FreeBSD 11.1, but it'll be in 11.2 that comes out later this next month. Um, or June. But um, uh, that, with, without that, what you ended up doing usually was ZFS send, pipe, gzip or xzip P or... Uh, PXE or PXE something. or whatever. Yeah. Uh, pipe SSH, pipe unexed, um, pipe ZFS receive. <laughs> Just so you could have it compressed over the wire. And yeah, then, because... Uh, you know, especially if you had highly compressible stuff, like I have a 45 gigabyte database that could compress down to like 10 gigs. Yes, totally. Uh, compressing it. Uh, but then you could also run into the problem of, you know, with XZIP or GZIP, even on the lowest compression setting, it can still take a lot of time. And yeah. you end up not keeping the network 100% saturated. And it's like, ah, this could be going faster if it wasn't wasting CPU. Why am I do burning Trying to this? compress stuff that's no good. So actually, uh, Z standard, the compression algorithm out of mm -hmm. Facebook, the command line tool has uh, a user-contributed patch uh, for adaptive mode. Uh, because Z-Standard actually has 19 levels of compression, right, yeah. uh, and they've actually extended that to have more levels now, um, 
or uh, negative levels that are even faster but provide less compression than uh, the minimum. Yeah, I see. Uh, the old minimum. Um, with the adaptive mode, you put it then like between ZFS send and mm -hmm. your ZFS receive, and it adjusts the compression level based on how much data is waiting to go over the network. Oh. So it keeps the network busy and, 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 and a pile of packets ready to go to the network. And as soon as there's packets are piling up waiting for the network, because so the network's the bottleneck, it turns the compression up because uh, you might as well spend some CPU time right. and make less You're data and anyway. send it over the network faster. But if the network buffer drains and now the network isn't going as fast as it could be, turn the compression level down and so that we're not uh, you know, sitting there burning up CPU trying to compress stuff that's not going to compress or you know, yeah. keep the network busy, but at the same time, don't send any more data than we have to. That is super fancy. I love that. Yeah. yeah. And so we've been waiting for that forever. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. It's like how how did nobody think of this sooner? Like even just for GZIP or something. Yeah, it's one of those yeah. things kind of floating around that you would assume. Yeah. Uh, Low and, hanging fruit. And, and finally, now that we have like uh, PI XZIP or uh, even mainline XZIP has it now, mm -hmm. and, and Z Sender has it, is threaded. Yes. So that exactly. you're using more than one of your cores to do <laughs> the compression. We've had these multi-core machines for kind of a while now. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, for a while it, it made a big difference um, to make sure that whether you compress it normally or with multiple cores, you would get the same compressed yes. file output. Right. Especially you know if you're going to publish like the checksum of of your compressed archive on the website. Uh, you want to make sure... Yeah, make uh, it easily reproducible. And yeah, and exactly, for reproducible build stuff, right? Which is another thing that's caught on in, in open source and so on now. If, um, sure, there's the source code, and, and there's the binary that you download and run, but how can we prove that that build? source code was used to build that? Uh, so with reproducible builds, it's like you run this script, and it... Uh, strips out certain settings, uh, right. like so we don't put date stamps in yeah, the binaries, yeah, totally. and uh, you know we don't put the host name of the machine that builds number it, or, uh, yeah. and build numbers and so on. Uh, but so that someone can download that source code six months from now, uh, run the same build script on their completely different machine, uh, which might end up with the same architecture, yeah, exactly. and end up building the same ISO file that you download, uh, and make sure that you can verify that. Yeah, I'm really glad that that seems to have caught on. People are realizing yes. that it, you know, it's work, right? Like, it's not a lot of build yeah, systems have to be changed or modified or customized. It's not exactly fun, and in the yeah. end, yeah. it's not some new feature it's that people faster. are going to yeah, be. There's no new feature. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's kind of the not fun work. So it's been nice to see the Debian project leading that, but mm -hmm. also getting buy-in from other projects. And I think they've had two or three of these uh, world reproducible build summits yeah. where they brought people together uh, to actually get, spend yeah, just get a <laughs> two days people hacking on it. Yeah, a weekend of actually trying to get it together. And uh, I think part of it is they built this program called the Diffoscope that actually can look oh. at binaries and find where the differences are so you can figure out, oh, that's that timestamp and go back there that and replace perfect it. Perfect sense. Yeah, then you can backtrack and figure yeah, it out. Yeah, so uh, usually what they do is... Uh, like even for things that are going to have a timestamp no matter what, mm -hmm. or where they can't easily change the format, uh, they'll just hard code the date to a specific date. So that it's always uh, consistent. And it'll yeah. be, yeah, as long as everybody uses that same date, you get the same binary either way. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, scope. Like, I'll have to play with that. Yeah, because uh, it can become a, a big thing, especially on some of the Linux distros where the packages you install from your package manager are built on like a random developer's home machine. Totally, yeah. They'll get uh, pushed you know, up some, to some archive somewhere. Yeah, and and in FreeBSD, we have a set of machines in a data center, and they just build all of the packages. Mm -hmm. So like, there's one machine, and it just builds all 30,000 packages for AMD64 for this version. Sure. Yep. And just does that like, form and once every three days, it builds them. And then on the other days, it builds like i386, and then the next day, it builds ARM64 or whatever, and it just cycles through all of them. Turns through the schedule. I think yeah. we have like 20-something builders that are all like, you know, 
constantly building. 32 to, or more cores with 128 gigs of RAM. That's and beautiful. Yeah. Just that they're churning, churning power Spitting into packets. binaries out. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, some, a lot of projects just don't have that kind of infrastructure, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so they have a more distributed build system. And, it, you know, you'd be more worried about... <laughs> What else was going on in this uh, developer's laptop when he built this? Yeah. Because right. the other thing is uh, our build system uses our jails thing, and uh, a completely clean operating system install uh, is where the package gets built. Nice. Yeah. So, like, uh, when it builds each package, it uh, starts up a completely clean environment, installs the dependencies yes. uh, from the binaries it built earlier in the process, uh, and then does the one build and then throws it. it all away. That's perfect. Uh, and actually, it does a, a close off from the network as well. Mm-hmm. So it, in a separate step, it fetches all the dependencies. Yeah, the thing and then when you're building it, um, it's not allowed to talk to the network. So it doesn't, uh, a configure script can't decide to randomly pull in extra files yeah. and, and change the results of your build. That is, I've re- that's beautiful. Thanks a ton to Alan for taking the time to sit down with us. Something tells me we'll be hearing more from him real soon. Yeah, in fact, I am processing the audio right now. It's a little tweaked out, so it needs some TLC. But there is a full 90-minute uncut tech snap impromptu live show that Alan, Wes, Jed, and listener Jeff stopped by for a bit and talked UPSs and battery cells. And I'm going to post that for our patrons, patreon.com slash Signal. It might be around a day or so because the audio is being processed, but check that out if you're a patron. You will love it. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go there to learn more about IX Systems and to find a white paper to help inform the rest of your company about the advantages of IX Systems. It's systems that are built right, that are going to last for you, and I say that from a lot of personal experience. Last week, we retired our FreeNAS Mini after many, many years of service. Longtime listeners of the show might even remember when I first got that thing. And we took it out of production, not because it had a problem, not because it wasn't fast enough, not because of any other reason than I just wanted more storage slots. That was such a great purchase for my small business. And if you're a small business, an individual, or a large enterprise— iX Systems has solutions for you. In fact, I would encourage you to check out some of the case studies they've had commissioned. iXsystems.com slash case dash studies. Go there and read up. This is some seriously in-depth research that can help you make your decision. And take a look at the FreeNAS Mini and the FreeNAS Mini XL, which even offers more storage solutions, which probably would have solved my problem back in the day if when I bought the Mini, the XL hadn't been even birthed yet. But now they have the Mini all the way up to true NAS rigs that can provide central storage for your virtualization infrastructure. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. A hardware manufacturer that works with you from the beginning initial sales process until it's racked in your data center, and they offer white glove service all the way through. They're experts in the hardware, they're experts in open source, and they can implement the best open source system you've ever had in production. And I can say that after years of being an iX Systems customer. iXsystems.com slash TechSnap. Thanks for visiting techsnap.systems slash contact and sending in your feedback, your questions, and your follow-up. And Mr. S is delivering on something he promised a few weeks ago. He writes into the show now with his guide on how to set up FreeNAS 
on DigitalOcean. <laughs> yep, he says, Dear Mr. Fisher and Mr. Payne, as always, I'd like to first reiterate what an excellent job you guys are doing to bring the knowledge and information to the public. Even after so many years in the trenches as a manager, JB's podcasts are by far the best sources of information I get. Wow. That's incredible. Well, that puts a smile on our face. Sure does. We try hard. As promised, he says, I've written another post on how to run FreeNAS on a DigitalOcean droplet. And he'll link to it in the show notes. If you go uh, find his email, you'll find the link in there. He says, check that out. There may be more things coming. Perhaps PFSense on a droplet? FreeNAS on a droplet. I'm going to give it a go after the show, Mr. S. Thank you for sending that in. And thanks for visiting techsnap.systems slash contact. We've got a couple pieces of feedback following up on our war story segment. First one this week is by our friend Oz. A few years back, I was a sysadmin team leader for a security company in Israel. One day, I decided that the server room was getting dirty, got out a vacuum cleaner room, and I went to clean it up. Now, sure enough, after about five minutes of me cleaning this room up, the security manager walked in screaming that the firewall cluster had crashed. And, of course, he blamed me. His logic was that, hey, you were here in the room, you were doing stuff, you must have disconnected something. Now, after we started to troubleshoot the incident, the firewall came back up all on its own. But we still had to have an incident investigation, and the CIO naturally was a little upset why I had decided to do that, and really decided that any activity in the server room should be documented and approved of, and that no one should just go in at any time that they want, which, hey, that's a reasonable rule. But Oz here felt like the server room was in desperate need of cleanup or something? Yeah, he did. And, you know, you do want clean production facilities, absolutely. Turns out he was a little bummed out by that because he had been having regular sex in the server room no. during the night shifts. And that's <laughs> actually the reason the room was so dirty. Regular sex. <laughs> he finishes up. Hmm. So I guess in some way I was responsible for the downtime. Love the show and the new format. Keep doing it. It's great. And it would also be great if you guys can interview people from the industry from time to time. Thank you for the very honest email, Oz. Uh, to your point about interviews, it's something that Wes and I have been chatting about as we visit uh, trade events and whatnot, uh, pulling different interesting individuals onto the show. So that could happen in the future. Um, <laughs> I did not. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what. When I when I grabbed this email for the show, uh, I saw I got to the vacuum part and I stopped reading because I went, oh, yeah, that's happened to me a dozen times. Somebody plugged in a vacuum, they unplugged a server. That's totally normal. I threw it in here. I did not expect the twist. (laughs) I love it. Uh, Dave's also got a bit of a twist to his war story. He says, regarding past work F-ups, when I was new at a cloud slash sysadmin job, I accidentally overwrote the MBR, the first 512 bytes, to be exact, of a production server's data drive. Oops. Well, but since it was Linux, there was really no immediate effect. But I knew eventually, sooner or later, that server would be rebooted and it would be screwed. The fix? I scrambled around and I figured out I could copy the MBR from an identical server's drive and then write it back over. I did it. I walked away. And to be amazed, it never actually did become a problem. Hey, that's great. Uh, a clever solution in a pinch. I'm glad it worked. These are some confession stories. I'm glad the uh, war story we covered last week inspired some of these. I love them. Uh, Carl wrote in, Wes, he's got a CTO view on new hires. We've still been getting a trickle of uh, hiring advice emails. Do you want to take Carl here? Yeah, sure. He writes, hey, I'm the CTO of a Chicago-based venture fund, not a headhunter and recruiting firm, so I can't say what the rest of the world looks for, but I can say that we have an unusually broad group of businesses that we support, giving us perspective on what makes someone indispensable in IT. 
We're in the medical device manufacturing space, but we're also in oil and gas drilling. Plus, we do precision laser cutting and micro-machining operations. And we're a high-frequency trading fund. And more. All with custom hardware and global network infrastructure that is quite literally badass. All right. Ah, That's awesome, Carl. You asked what we're looking for? What things to learn? First of all, I should say we don't give a crap about certifications. In some places, that may get you in the door, but here we care more about what projects you've built, even if only for yourself, even if only at home, for the sheer love of it. Many of the technology cornerstones of our business started out as employees' home projects. Linux, Asterix, PFSense, CFS, Bash, Python, and even on-premises virtualization fall into that category. Note the absence of Cisco routers, Windows servers, AWS instances, and other technologies that are cost-prohibitive for the weekend experimenter. We like to hire people who think like scientists, people who self-teach and can figure things out, not the technician who may have the certs but can only work by rote. We like to say, memorize nothing. Instead, really understand how a thing works. And even 100 million details will become self-evident. I think that really really speaks Mm -hmm. to, to our views here on the TechSnap program. Yep. Everyone on our team does what they do for the love of it. They listen to TechSnap not to get ahead in their job, but for the joy of hearing what others in the field are thinking about. These are the same people who, after working a full day in IT, go home, build, and play with their own home systems. Just for fun. Yours truly, Carl. That was a great email, Carl, and thank you for the insights on that. And I hope for those of you that are looking for a gig in IT, some of that helps. If you want to send us a war story or your thoughts, where do they go, Wes? They go to techsnap.systems slash contact. Pow! Dio.co slash snap. DigitalOcean is scalable compute services. It's, it's more than virtual machines. Droplets are scalable compute platforms with add-on storage, security, and monitoring capabilities that are easy to use and easy to put in production, but that doesn't mean they're simple. It means they're complete and they're sophisticated and well-documented. DigitalOcean has everything accessible via their dashboard and an API, which means it's really easy to automate with your existing systems, be it a Bash script, a Python library, a Ruby app, or an Android app. They have a great set of libraries ready to go. You choose a droplet and you're set. You can resize it later on. You can also work with their new flexible droplets. You mix and match the resources that your application needs. More disk, more storage, more CPU. You just mix and match for $15 a month. But when you go to do.co slash snap, you get a $100 credit. This could be a great opportunity to try out some of the new Linux releases that have just come out. DigitalOcean is manically updating their documentation. Lots of new posts for Ubuntu 18.04 LTS. I've landed on one that I'm reading through right now, how to secure Apache with Let's Encrypt on 18.04. They're going through and updating all of their documentation. And DigitalOcean is great at this. Easy to read, clear, and well-segmented. And it's got little chapters. It's pretty great. And it's just one of the many features of DigitalOcean. My favorite system is just three cents an hour now you can get a $100 credit to try out anything you'd like. Dio.co slash snap. That'll bring us to the end of today's program. Thank you for joining us. But you know, before we get out of here, Mr. Payne, we do have one more link to share with the audience, something that might be useful. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Turns out PagerDuty has open sourced a bunch of their security training resources. I, I love uh, these guides. There's a ton to dig into, so I haven't seen all of it. But they've got security training both for, for everyone in your company and specific security training for engineers, you know, for the people actually designing some of these systems. 
they identified some of the key problems I've seen in security training myself. A lot of times it's really just to check some compliance checkboxes, right? You know, legal says you need to do this. Everyone has to do it every year. You have to attend the meeting. You don't really pay attention. You're on your phone playing a game. You sign your name done. But does that really meet the needs of the organization? No, of course not. So they've come up with some interesting philosophies, things like teach the why, not just the what. Don't shy away from technical details. Make it accessible to any skill level. And hey, it's okay to be funny. And I think just those real world considerations make a world of difference when you're trying to teach something really important. Yeah, and they expand on each point. And I I thought, oh, okay, I'll give this a go. You know what, though, I started reading through it. And I'm like, oh, damn, they're right. Yeah, that's how you should do it. That would work. Uh, I just thought it was really valuable, and you did too. So we wanted to give you guys a link to that. You can find it in the show notes. In fact, you know what? Notes have links for everything we talked about. Funny how that works. You just go to techsnap.systems slash 366 for that. You can follow the whole dang network on Twitter. That's at Jupiter Signal. Yeah, great place to get news and announcements. You can follow Wes. He's at Wes Payne. I'm at Chris LAS. But you know what else? They might want some more Linux Fest content. Where do they find that? They find that on Linux Unplugged. Yeah, linuxunplugged.com. We'll have some episodes coming out with that. And something tells me we're going to have an update on that FreeNAS situation really soon. Stay tuned. We may have some new developments there. Anyways, in the meantime, that'll bring us to an end for this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining us this week. See you next week. Mm